Well, good morning. Welcome back to Holy Smokes. We're studying Leviticus. We're in chapter 21 today, and whether this is your first week or the 21st week that you've been with us for this series, I'm excited because I think we've got a pretty interesting one today. And, and I'll admit to you, when I started reading chapter 21, and I was kind of trying to understand it, and having one of these moments like, like I know I've read this before, but I'm pretty sure like the, the one time I know for sure I read Leviticus beginning to end... I probably did it all like in two sittings because it is sort of like that, whew, let's just get through Leviticus, right? <laughs> so when I slowed down to study on, on this week, it was like there, there were moments in here that I'm thinking, I've got to share something from this, but where, what, what exactly does this have to do with, with uh, anything? <laughs> Here's what I keep finding out again and again during this series. Every time I, I think I'm not sure where this is going and then I have to slow down, when we slow down, then there's like this moment where, where God leans in and says, like, here's why I wrote that. Here's what I want you to understand there. And so I think there's a, a pretty cool one of those happening this morning. Because as we've been going through this book, in the last couple of chapters, we've seen how God had some pretty specific things that he told his people about their holiness. How he wanted to live them to live their lives. And how he described to them that they should be perfect because he was perfect. They should be holy because he was holy. And now in verse 21, it shifts from the people, just as they were to strive for holiness, so also the priests, as a specific group of the people, have very specific instructions that you essentially could summarize as how to be a priest, how to act like a priest, because they are the ones who serve in the presence of God and then represent him back to the people. And so he's got a specific set of instructions just for them. And we saw back in chapters 8 through 10 where the priests were ordained, how Aaron was chosen as the high priest, and his sons and their descendants would be the priests after him. And now in chapters 21 and 22, we're going to see essentially the qualifications, the instructions for these priests. And you think about what God is doing here this is pretty heavy duty because these were the people who would be the closest to God into the tabernacle, offering the sacrifices, the high priest who would go behind the veil into the very presence of God. And so this was a heavy duty for them and something that they would have to pay a lot of attention to because they represent God to the people. And so we're going to dig into chapter 21 today. And as I read this, as I looked at kind of the qualifications and some of the things that seemed strange at first and began to zoom back out and say, so what exactly is God doing here and, and what do we take from it? This is a place where it'd be easy to say, historically, isn't that interesting for someone else? And just turn the page. But here's what I think we're going to see this morning. You see, the priests were called to be perfect because of the way that they represented God to other people. But the perfect call of the priests points to the priest who is perfect. And you can probably see a little bit of where we're going with this because the perfect call of the priests points to the priest who is perfect. So let's dive into chapter 21 and see how this happens. First of all, what we see is that the priests had a higher standard of holiness. So for everything that God had given the people, now there was another layer for the priests where he was going to go into more detail on their ritual and moral purity. This is what it says, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except 
For his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband, for he, for her, he may defile himself. All right, so what God is telling them here is that they need to avoid death. Because they are priests, because they are going to be in God's presence, they can't be around death because it makes them impure. See, ultimately, death is the curse of sin. Death is the punishment for sin. And so to be in the presence of death is something that would make them impure as they went to stand before God. But God gives them that word in verse 2, accept. So don't go near a dead body unless it's like your immediate family. The people that you are absolutely the closest to. The sister is included there because if she hasn't been married yet, then she's still part of this household. And so God is very specific. In verses 5 and 6, he also describes how they should not mourn for the dead in these certain ways. And if you read that, you'll recognize it's very similar to what we saw in chapter 19. Because this is how the idolatrous and pagan nations around them would mourn for the dead. Shaving their hair weird, cutting their bodies weird. And so he tells them, don't do that. That will defile you. Why? Because they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. Because they are the ones who will stand before the Lord and they are the ones who represent him to the people and the people to him. And so they are called to avoid death because that's the curse of sin. Well, not only that, they avoid death as the curse of sin, but then in verse 7, they're instructed to find a pure bride. Now, this is really interesting because for all the things that had been told to the people, now here's something that's unique to the priests. So when God is saying, if you're a priest who serves in his presence, here's something important, and he chooses marriage. It says, they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman. Nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Now again, there's something interesting going on here. Because that phrase, harlot or defiled woman, essentially means a prostitute. they, They wouldn't be able to take a prostitute as their wife or somebody who had been with multiple men. Okay, so God is getting like really specific here, but but why is this such a big deal? You see, the reason is that the relationship of the priest and his wife would reflect the relationship of God with his people. And so God wanted to make sure that this relationship of the priests who represented the people to God was a pure one. And so he gives them this very specific instruction. It's interesting in verse 8 that he also gives the people the responsibility to help hold the priests to this. He says to the people, Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, For I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. Verse 9, even the actions of the daughter reflect back on the family and on the priest because God wants to be so clear about what his relationship with his people looks like. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see different places where God uses this kind of, of marital language to refer to his people. Unfortunately, with the people of Israel, because of how they failed time and time again to keep God's commandments, they are often described as a harlot. In his book, Sacred Romance, the author John Eldridge really summarizes this, captures this really well. Um, He has taken this idea of of God and his bride as really telling the full epic story of God. It's really interesting because he has a part in there that is, uh, it's, it's hard to think about because he describes the way that God created us to love us. 
that we would be his one and only, his true love, and how we essentially betrayed him. And more than just like we kind of forgot or we made some mistakes, but as if we had actually given ourselves over to other lovers to let them have their way with us as a people, as individuals, when God wanted to be our one true love. And that's the kind of language that God uses of his people in the Old Testament when he calls them harlots, that they had intentionally gone out to prostitute themselves with other gods, with other things that drew them away from him. But because his relationship is so important with his people, he gives it to the priest to symbolize it in this way, that they must find a pure bride. So they avoid death as the curse of sin. They must find a pure bride. And then there's a few words for the high priest in verses uh, 10 to 15. We'll come back to those. But jump down to 16, because there's a little bit more that applies to all of the priests. Because the priests are called to have physical wholeness. Now, this is really interesting, and and I'll be honest with you. This is the part where, when I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, I think that makes sense. Okay, wait, what? Listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame who has a marred face, which commentators debate whether that means injured or just ugly, or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye, eczema or scab or a eunuch. I'm still in the Bible, right? <laughs> All right, so, so what is God talking about here? Because as I start to read that list, I don't know about you, I start to get self-conscious. Like, Are my arms and legs too long? Like, can I serve God or is it, have I already been disqualified, right? Well, well, here's what God is doing. Because on the surface, it's important to understand that, that what he's writing here is not about human dignity. It's not about human value. It's not about quality of a person or morality of a person. What God's doing is giving him, his people a symbol of holiness. That the, the physical wholeness of the priesthood would symbolize the wholeness of the holiness of God's people. And so he's trying to act out for them what perfection looks like. And so I think this is really a a fascinating concept because for the Jewish people, they pretty much equated disease or injury, those kinds of things, any kind of physical defect directly to sin. If you have something like that, you must have sinned. And, And that stretches into the time of Jesus where you remember There's a time where Jesus meets a blind man, and everybody around him says, okay, so who sinned? Uh, Clearly, this is the direct cause of sin. So was it him? Was it his parents? And and Jesus refutes that. In fact, he heals the man. And yet, there are times where God does relate the two directly. And so the people of God had pretty much taken that to mean that anything physical wrong with you must be because of sin. And so what God is partly doing here is that because he knows they think that way, he wants to give them a symbol so that it's clear that even by their physical wholeness, that no spiritual defect can come into the presence of the holiness of God. Just like the sacrifices that they would offer had to be unblemished lambs. So let's pause right there for a minute and just think about ourselves. Now you don't have to think about yourself physically, but I want you to think about yourself spiritually. 
are there spiritual defects in us that keep us from being able to enter into the presence of God? Are are there spiritual defects in us that make us keep ourselves from going into his presence? Because it'd be easy to look at the outside and say, well, too tall, too short, too too much eczema. (laughs) But what about looking at the, the inside? You see, again, by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had gotten so good keeping an eye on this outside stuff, they left the inside stuff behind. Jesus described it like a cup, that they were cleaning the outside while the inside was a mess. You see, because on the inside is where we harbor resentment. On the inside is where we give birth to anger. On the inside is where we give in to lust, to gossip, to doubt, to self-hatred. You see, on the inside, we can have defects that make us pull away from the presence of God who wants to heal us of those things. And so even as God is giving them this picture of physical wholeness, it's a symbol of the holiness that he wants to develop in their hearts. And he's very careful, in fact, in verse 22, to make sure that the people know that these defects are not a moral issue, that they're not a question of if God loves these people or if they can be around him. It's merely that they won't be the ones who offer the sacrifices, offer the bread. Because in verse 22, he protects the fellowship of the physically disabled. He points out here that he may eat the bread of his God. Not just the holy, but the most holy and the holy. You see, what God is saying is, although they won't be the ones who offer the sacrifice or bring the bread, they still have all of the benefits of being a part of the priestly family. They would still receive the tithe. They could still eat this food that had come from the sacrifices on the altars that were reserved for the priests. And so God is careful to protect them. We saw that in chapter 19 as well, where there's specific instruction for the blind, for the deaf, how we care for them, how we love them. You know, it reminds me a little bit of, of a woman you might know. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny had an accident uh, in her teenage years that left her paralyzed, essentially from the neck down. And she's a faithful follower of Christ. And, and what's fascinating to me, probably the, the first way that I encountered Johnny was through her art. She's actually an amazing artist. And I like to paint a little bit. I like to draw. And so the, the first thing I noticed was I, I saw this book... And it had just these beautiful paintings. And and so as I was looking through the the paintings, I was thinking to myself, man, how do I learn to paint like that? Well, if you know Johnny Erickson Tata, she paints with her mouth. Because of her paralysis, she she holds the paintbrush in her mouth, sits as close as she can to the canvas, and does kind of... I don't think I can learn that. (laughs) As beautiful as it was, and and with all of my faculties about me, there was no chance. She has a gift. But she's not only an artist... She's also an author and has become a globally renowned speaker as a faithful follower of Christ because she is learning to be holy on the inside. And one of the most amazing things I've heard her say, honestly, probably one of the most painful things that I've heard her say, which ends up being one of the most true things I've heard her say, is that she had to be healed of her desire to be healed. That for so much of her life, she was so focused on the outside of her, on what God could or would do there, that she was ignoring the inside of herself. And so she talks about how God had to heal her of her desire to be healed so that he could heal her heart. 
so that he could teach her to love him and to love others. I can tell you, Johnny Erickson Tata has been like a priest to hundreds, thousands, probably millions of people because of the way that she can speak to the trials of life through the love of God and serve him and go into his presence through her Savior. So the priests had to have physical wholeness. They had to have a pure marriage. And now there's going to be even more specific instruction for the high priests. So when we go back to verses 10 to 15, you see the physical wholeness stands, but now God's going even deeper on the way they approach death and the way they approach marriage. Because the high priest had the highest standard of holiness. Look what it says here. He who is the high priest among his brethren, or whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. That's just regular mourning of death. They can't even do that. Nor shall he go near any dead body. You remember the others, he said, don't go near a dead body, except. Now for the high priest, he says, no except. They may not go near any dead body. Not even the father or the mother can't go out of the sanctuary because that would profane the sanctuary of his God. Now, as we think about this, this seems pretty strict, right? But if we remember that death is the curse of sin, God is saying, you are the high priest. You are the one who comes into the holy of holies, the closest possible place on earth to be in God's presence. I don't want death to come anywhere near you. In fact, if you remember all the way back to chapter 10, When we were there, we jumped forward to this spot because this was the instruction that God gave to Aaron when his two sons, who were priests, went into the tabernacle and offered profane fire. They they did the offerings the wrong way in uh, in, in their own hubris. And when they died, God told Aaron not to mourn, that he couldn't go out of the temple. And some of the reasoning for that is that God doesn't want this leader of the people to make it appear as if God had been unfair or as if death was an unfair penalty for sin. God is so serious about this that he wants even the action of the high priest to demonstrate the justice of God. But not only that, it's because that would make him impure. And then he wouldn't be able to represent God, for the, uh, to represent the people before God. Not only that... It says also in verse 13, when it talks about his marriage, he shall take a wife in her virginity. So we'd already seen that he couldn't have a harlot or a divorced woman, but but look here also, a widow or divorced woman or defiled woman or harlot. So he even adds a widow in there, a, a place in which maybe no sin has occurred. And yet he could only take a woman who had never been with anyone before. Uh, the picture is here that this is the purest of the pure, the holiest of the whole would be chosen as his bride. Now, those are pretty stringent qualifications. As you think about these things, and as we read the story of Leviticus, and as you go through the story of the Bible, and you see how often God gives this instruction to his people, and they do the opposite. God gives this instruction to his people, and they fail again. God gives this instruction to his priests, and they can't keep it. Even high priests we see in the Old Testament that fail. And even when they're doing it right, the high priests had to go in day after day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice, 
even for themselves because they were impure. They had to sacrifice before they could even go in to do the sacrifice so that they could get right with God before trying to represent the people to him. And so this is what happened to me as I read this chapter. I start thinking, how did they ever find anybody who could be a priest, let alone a high priest? Who can live up to all of this? Then I start thinking about myself. I start thinking about you guys. Where in the world are we going to find a high priest without defect who can stand before God on our behalf? See where this is going? It's it's none of us sitting in this room right now. You see, here's what happens when you start reading, you know, as we've been going through this series, we've been talking about some Bible principles that we use to help us study. And the one we probably come back to the most is principle number one, the Jesus principle. You see, the Jesus principle asks of every page in this book, what does this passage predict, describe, or reveal about Jesus' character, work, or mission? Well, here's what it is. When we ask that question... Where are we going to find someone like that? One of the things I love in the Old Testament, God asks that question too. There are these amazing places, like in the book of Isaiah, where he says that God was looking for someone to bring deliverance. And finding no one, he did it himself. You see, that's what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Finding no one, God says, I will come down there. I will be the high priest. In fact, when we look at Leviticus 21, God has already said three times that he's actually doing this himself. At the end of each of these sections, verse 8, verse 15, and verse 23, look at what he says. I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. Nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. Lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. You see, God is already saying, I'm doing it myself. You are my people. You are my priests. You are the high priest. But even you, as ones who are set apart, cannot make yourselves holy. I, the Lord, sanctify. I, the Lord, make holy. I, the Lord, set apart. This is how Leviticus 21 foreshadows the work that Jesus Christ is going to do. That when we can't draw near to God, God draws near to us. That the perfect call of the priests that they couldn't live up to, that we couldn't live up to, is lived up to perfectly in Jesus Christ. Because he is the perfect high priest forever. Where these priests would have to go into the tabernacle and into the temple day after day after day. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest forever. He is the priest and he is the sacrifice that once for all gives us victory over sin. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 6. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, into the holiest of holies, the closest possible location to God's presence, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, that word forever goes in both directions. 
Melchizedek was a priest that Abraham actually tithed to when he met him, who it says was a priest who served God long before Aaron and his sons, long before the tribe of the Levites. And the indication here then is that Jesus is the high priest from eternity past to eternity future, the perfect high priest forever who can go before God on our behalf, who is God to us and who represents us to God. Now here's a thought for you. When Jesus came to earth, when he came to be the sacrifice, this was the presence of God right here in the flesh with his people. But when he returned to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. Right, that if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, if you are a brother or sister, if you are an eye or a hand or a foot in the body of Christ... The presence of God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. I mean, you want to talk about the closest possible place to the presence of God here on earth? That's the Holy Spirit in you. You know, and often we, we look at things like this and we say, well, let's look at the modern church and we think, okay, priests, high priests, that's probably like, like pastors, Right? Well, there is a, some connection maybe in leadership, but the reality is those two things don't equate. In the New Testament, it describes how we as followers of Christ are all priests because we are in the presence of God all the time by having his spirit in us and we represent him back to the people around us. And so some people have pastoral gifts, some people have gifts in teaching, some people have gifts in encouragement. There are people down the hallway in the East Station right now that have pretty much every combination of gifts the Holy Spirit could give <laughs> to take care of all those kids, all those students, and they are serving for His glory with the Holy Spirit and the presence of God pouring out of them right now. It's in the groups that you might go to during the week with other men or women from our community, serving one another as priests. Representing God to one another. But we need a high priest to be able to do it. And that's Jesus Christ. Now, here, here's another moment in my study where I got a little confused. Because if I start thinking about the high priest forever, and then I come back to Leviticus 21, and it says the high priest can't go anywhere near death. Right? Not even for his immediate family. Wait a minute. Jesus died how much closer do you get to death than being dead? Shouldn't Jesus be disqualified then? Or, or, I mean, I guess he had physical wholeness. He definitely had holiness. He fulfilled that. But what about this pure bride thing? Because the Old Testament and the New are constantly talking about the people of God like we are his bride. And yet, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we're not pure if he takes us as his bride doesn't that disqualify jesus again then this is where all the light bulbs came on for me because here's the deal because he is the high priest forever see only the high priest forever could die and instead of being defiled he conquered death only the high priest forever. You and I could never do this. No son of Aaron or Aaron himself could ever do this. But the high priest forever could die because he could conquer death. 
Only the high priest forever could have complete holiness and wholeness. Only the high priest forever could take a people who are impure, who have the defects on the outside and the inside, and still take them as his bride because only the high priest forever can purify a bride for himself. That when Jesus looks at us, instead of casting us aside, he says, I am the high priest forever. My bride must be pure. I will make her pure. I will come for you. And if you submit to me, if you call me Lord, if you know the love that I have for you and you love me in return, then I will clean up every defect. I will make you perfect even as I am making you holy. That Jesus purifies his bride. This is what Ephesians 5 is all about. I know most of the times I think about Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, and it says, husbands, love your wives. Well, then it tells us how Jesus does that. And I usually back up from there to make sure that I love my wife the way that I'm called to. That's good, but don't miss first how Jesus does this. Look at what it says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. You see, again, how God uses this language of the marriage to depict his relationship with us. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Only the high priest forever can do this. You see, because Jesus is preparing a bride for himself. And in the book of Revelation, we actually see how the marriage supper of the Lamb is approaching. And all through that book, for all of the other turmoil that is happening, we see how he continues to purify his bride because the marriage supper is coming. And so right now, in the moment in time that we live in, we are described as being made perfect forever, even as we're being made holy. That we are on the journey of life where he is sanctifying us day by day, even as he prepares us for that marriage. And there's a moment in Revelation that I I absolutely love these verses because it describes exactly what he's done and what we can do because of it. This comes out of chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It says of Jesus, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us, church, this is you. This is the body of Christ. This is the people of the king. He has made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You see, when we look at Leviticus 21 and we see the holiness that they're called to, it's no longer one subset of the people of God. Because we live in the presence of God and because we represent him to other people, because we help draw other people into his presence, we are a kingdom of priests. How desperately we need this truth. That when we feel like we have to clean ourselves up first, when we feel like we have to fix ourselves before we can come to God, God says, I will draw you to me. I will make you pure. And I will let you go back to other people to show them what I am like. 
you know, I, th- I think about this in my own marriage a little bit because I notice that's, that's one of the places where kind of some of the broken ways that I can think about God at times, I also can apply that to my wife. You know, and, and so I, I think, I've got to fix myself and then I'll pray. You know, I've got I've to do this first and, and then I'll go talk to God because if I go right now, he, he's going to know and he won't like... Right? And, and sometimes I go to my wife that way too. You know, it's like I want to be a better husband. I, I want to love you more. I, I want to be, be a better father. I want to be... And, and so maybe I'll just I'll hang out over here and you can distance in the relationship a little bit because you think I've got to fix myself. Then I'll come back and be a good husband. And so to, to my wife's credit, you know, one of the things that she will say to me is that she just has so much mercy for me, so much grace and so much forgiveness. And when I can't understand why, she says, well, I can forgive you because God forgave me. And here's the thing, we're already married. <laughs> so if you're not perfect, well, we're already here. So we might as well work on it together. And here's what I will tell people again and again and again. That, that the only way that I've seen that marriage really works is if she is submitted to Christ and I am submitted to Christ. And then we come together and try to do this thing. Because it's going to be a lot of work. But we need the high priest feeding into us if we're going to be priests to each other. If our marriage is going to represent the relationship of God with his people. You see, and that's the way that God is speaking to us here. Because as high priests, we point people to the high priest. And often, in, in pretty much every other religion in the world, it says, clean yourself up first. Fix yourself. Work your way to God. Earn your way to God. Right? Make yourself lovable. Prove that you're valuable and then see how God blesses you. But God says, I know the defects on the outside and the inside. I know you can't do it. You know, this is what it looks like, but you can't live up to it. So I will do this in you. You see, then when he calls us to himself, all of those pictures of holiness... The kind of love that he wants us to extend to other people and to ourselves. The way the gospel truth can set us free on a daily basis. Then he starts to do that in us. The holiness he calls us to is made possible by him. So we want to grow in holiness to be effective priests so that we can demonstrate and offer God's grace to others. You see, holiness and our assurance in Christ are not based on us. They're based on Him. But what happens is, if there is a obedience issue in our lives, if there's a sin issue in our lives, if there's a doubt issue in our lives, these things become like the defects in our hearts. And they keep us from being able to serve Him effectively. You see, that's one of the things that I think was so helpful about what Johnny Erickson Tata said, and, and that the priests had to discover for themselves, and I think is a word for us because the priests would have to sacrifice for themselves before they could go sacrifice for the people. Essentially, as priests, we've got to be willing to go to God and say, deal with me first. God, if there's any pride in my heart, if there's any anger in my heart, if there's any doubt in my heart, God, see if it's in there and pull it out. God, deal with me first. So that I can go to other people and show them what you are like. So that I can have confidence and effectiveness in Christ as a priest who demonstrates and offers your grace to others. 
So how can I draw nearer to God's presence? How can I get closer to Him? You know, I'll just give you a couple of ways that I think are helpful for that. And one of those is that you have to carve out time in your daily routine to just listen to God. Maybe you do that, but if you don't, let me encourage you, even this week, just take like 15 minutes a day. And it can probably be any time you want. I always recommend the morning, because I've just found for myself, if I do it first thing in the morning, that kind of sets a tone for the whole day. If I don't, then I hit like lunchtime or middle of a meeting somewhere, and I just wonder like, like why I feel off. But whenever it happens, set aside 15 minutes, sit down, open the Word, turn everything else off. Just listen. You know, for me, that even means, like, turning off some good things. I, I like to listen to, uh, to other pastors and, and, and people who speak on the Bible. Like, if I'm going through Leviticus, I'll love to pull up a couple other guys who've studied that and, and listen to them. But it's hard to listen to them and to just be still and listen to God. Now, certainly, I'll absorb that, and, and when they're speaking the Word, God's going to use that. But having that time where you even just turn that off and just let there be quiet... Music is another thing. Worship music is one of my major worship pathways, but there's times where even music, I just have to turn off, read the word, and just say, all right, God, so what? If love is the thing you want and you say you can help me with that, what does it look like today? Who am I going to be around today? How do I love them? Here's another thing. I would encourage you, find someone else who's a little further in the journey than you and ask them if you can walk alongside them in their journey. That one-on-one kind of mentorship, discipleship, you will learn an incredible amount of things just by being with someone. Whatever phase of life you're in, whatever stage of the journey, find somebody who's just a little bit farther and learn from them what God has done in their lives. Learn from them what God has been teaching them. Ask them what they're reading lately and what they're listening to and what he's saying. And then think about how can I demonstrate that to other people? Well, in a similar way, I'd say, find somebody who's not quite as far on the journey as you are. Maybe somebody who's still exploring God or somebody who has who just kind of crossed over from disbelief to belief or, or maybe somebody who's been on the journey for a while but they're in a different life phase than you and start walking with them and speak to them the things that God has taught you, what you're praying about, what you're hearing, what you've been encouraged by. The ability to take what God has been feeding into you and then verbalize that to another person, the encouragement they'll receive And the wisdom that you'll find is incredible. Show them what it looks like to love. Show them how to be generous. Walk side by side with each other when you help the less fortunate, when you serve others. Walk that walk together to see what it's like to be a priest who represents God to the people around you and who represents them back to God as you draw them closer. That's all I'll say on that point for today because we're going to get more in chapter 22 next week. But here's my encouragement for you as we close. Remember, you are a priest. As a follower of Christ, you have the presence of God with you everywhere you go. But you are not the high priest. Your confidence does not come from yourself, but from the assurance of the high priest forever who will have his bride. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are blessed in your presence today. We thank you that you are with us wherever we go. Lord, it is a humbling thought, it is a sobering thought, and yet it is a joyous thought and an exciting thought. And so, Lord, I just pray for every heart here this morning, Lord, that you would draw us closer. Whatever point we are at right now, that today, this week, might be an opportunity to come a little bit nearer to you. 
God, that you would continue to purify our hearts. Show us what you have planned for us as we rest in Jesus Christ, our high priest forever. Thank you, Lord, in his name. Amen. And thank all of you for being here this week. Hope to see you next week for Leviticus chapter 22 as we talk more about what it looks like to be a priest in the kingdom of God. Thank you for coming.